Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. On this episode, I am extremely honored and lucky to have the individuals from a very prestigious canine program here in the United States. And the time that I know something like this, even though it's only an hour, is very valuable to these individuals. So without any further ado, I would like to introduce Lieutenant Pappas from the NYPD Canine Transit Bureau Canine Program. Lieutenant, thank you for coming on the show. And I know you also have somebody with you. Yes. Uh, good evening, uh, Cameron. Thank you for having us. Um, it's my pleasure to be on. Uh, uh, with me, I have uh, the director of my canine training staff, Sergeant Randy Brenner. Randy, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. So, obviously, NYPD, very well-known agency, and, and, and obviously you guys have been through many, many, many uh, incidents that have kind of been a crucible and molding for your canine program. So, kind of with that said, how did your guys' program, how did you guys get to where you're at today? What were the kind of like, you know, obviously 9-11 was a major critical incident, but what are some of the things or how did you guys get to and develop the program you have today? So, uh, Cameron, uh, Randy and I started this program uh, 15 years ago. We started it from scratch. Um, we're one of currently five canine programs in the New York City Police Department. We're the largest. We've responded to more terrorist attacks than any other canine unit in the United States. And with all of these incidents that we respond to, critical incidents, large gatherings, we always learn something, take away something. And when we come back and we discuss the incident or the, or the response plan, we always try to make it better. So we've evolved over the last 15 years into where we are today. And um, a lot of that evolution has to do, the cornerstone of that evolution, of course, is training. So it's training good dogs, having a great response plan, having good deployments, good canine management. I can't underscore that enough because uh, oftentimes canine handlers are left to the mercy of people who don't know anything about canine. Um, and uh, again, the cornerstone is training. So when we extrapolate something from an incident, I come back, we sit down, we talk about it, and we come up with ideas and ways to 
evolved into a superior product, a superior response, um, a more effective response, I should say. Uh, and I'm going to turn it over to Randy, who's going to talk more about the um, operational end of the training programs. Hi, Cameron. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate it. We're glad to be on. Um, what's what I want to stress what's important is is the training in the operational live environment. And that's something that you have to keep uh, consistently doing on a regular basis in order to get the dogs comfortable with that type of any different type of training environment that they might encounter. This way, when we deploy on a real uh, deployment, we we the dogs are comfortable doing any of the tasks that we want them to perform. The important part is, is that the handler knows how to utilize the dog. And that's something that we try to set them up for during training on a regular basis. So what do I mean by that? During training, we perform maintenance training five days a week in our unit on two separate tours. And pretty much we have 52 canine teams total in the unit. We try to provide training very consistently. So we, we're always doing some type of maintenance training. And what we want to do is, is put the handlers in a situation where they have to break down a search and manage their way based on what their dog does through a, a lengthy search in a live environment. And that's something that we have to consistently do all the time and, and make sure that we work on the things that they need to work on because every single transit canine dog is trained the same and every single transit canine dog is selected the same. So the easy part is training the dog, but training the handler to break down a search and manage his way through the search based on the things that his dog does and the things that he does during the search, that's all the difference in the effectiveness of the search. So we concentrate a lot more on handling than we do on actual dog training. Dog training, each and every one of our handlers goes through a basic training course that lasts three to four months that teaches them uh, how to handle a dog. But what we want to do is put them in real life scenarios where we could see how they effectively manage their way through it. Sure. And are the dogs, when you guys uh, bring your handlers on, do you guys have a staff that already pre-trained the dog on the odors? And then when the handler gets there, the dog already knows it? Or is it zero on zero, you know, new handler with uh, a dog that knows nothing? No, what we do is, is we, we, like to, we, we like to start both the dog and the handler green, no odor, nothing. Imprinting happens with the handler. It happens together. So what we like to do is build them up together. We want to put them on the same level from the beginning. Yes, we select them. Uh, we, we do our test. We have the same buy team when we select them. We select them from the vendor. Mm -hmm. And then when we start them in the class, we start them together. We don't pre-train them at all and then hand them off to the handler. Okay. What we try to do is match them up the best way we can based on strengths and weaknesses. And even if we have to shuffle the deck at some point, we get a good idea. If we have four or five people in a class, we get a good idea of, who works well with what dog, and that, that might take a, a week of shuffling the deck around a little bit with different dogs and different handlers. And once we think we got the right match, then we start the imprinting process, and we think it's better to build them up together. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that's, that's debatable. Um, it depends on what type of situation you're in. Sure. But what we do do 
is we take our we take our time. So that's a luxury that I do have because of my department and the support that I have above me. We take our time and I'm in no rush. I want I want a complete package. So I want a solid product at the end. And the only way we can do that is by taking our time because the instructor has to evaluate each individual canine team separately mm-hmm. and one progresses at a different level. Oh, so yeah. That's what we to make sure that we follow very carefully. And then once we think the cake is baked, then we're ready to go. Then we step it up a little bit into much more challenging searches. And then, like I said, in maintenance training, we're constantly trying to challenge the handler, but we don't want to set them up to fail either. Mm-hmm. We want to get a positive result and we want to get a learning experience for each one of our handlers. So we do a lot. We do a lot, a lot of challenging searches. We do them in live environments. But what we want to see is really how they break down the search in order to get the effectiveness out of their dog. Of course. Uh, I just want to add, Cameron, if, if I can add. Sure. From... from from the position of commanding officer of Transit Canine, I've mandated to uh, Randy that I, I don't want, when I when we start building a team, uh, you know, I, I know there's different guidelines about how long it takes, uh, like New York State's guidelines might say it's, it's a 12-week course, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. My instruction is I don't care how long it takes. I want a proficient team yep. because, as I said before, we're betting our lives on these dogs and not just our lives, the dog's life, our life, officers around us and the riding public and the citizens of, of New York. We police the densest urban environment in the, in the Western hemisphere, mm-hmm. the, the New York City transit system, which moves six million people a day. It's the densest urban environment. It's a much sought after target by terrorists. Mm-hmm. So I want to be sure that when we put a canine team out there that they know what they're doing and that the dog and the team can do what we say it does. There's no smoke and mirrors. So I, I don't care if, if the team is in there um, 16 or 20 or 25 or 30 weeks. So long as we get the product that we need, a functional product that then, like Randy said, he can build on afterwards. Because once that basic training is done, um, then there's also integration into that dense urban o- environment. Um, it, it's it's a lot more than just the basic training. Uh, and then, like we just discussed, we want to throw curveballs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where the canine instructors come in. But that's also where uh, real life scenario based training comes in. And again, as we discussed, although we don't set these guys up to fail and girls, if they do fail in training, then great. It's a learning experience that they won't forget. Like, oh, I remember when that happened. Great. Um, we also teach them to think on their feet when they're mm-hmm. out there mm-hmm. in a real environment. So we want it, like Randy said before, let's let them conduct their own search and then we can discuss it afterwards. We'll discuss it based on base pra- uh, best practices, things that we learned in other incidents. And I mean it when I say that every incident we go to, there's something, there's a takeaway that we take away and we evolve into something more efficient um, and something that works better. Absolutely. And, and, 
you know, one of the things you brought up was training to the objective versus training to a timeline. And I was just doing that lecture today in my class was, uh, you know, I have right now in the classes are, is the gamut of different people. I have some human remains detection handlers in a class. I have the I have a, a bomb dog handler, I have a drug dog handler. And, you know, and there's some new people and some new people are very uh, like their background is being very rigid with time. Like we should be doing this at this time, this to this time. And I had to have a conversation today where I said, it's about objectives. We, our training goes to meet the objective. That could mean the timeline is longer. It could mean the timeline is shorter depending on my dog and depending on the handler and depending on the team working together. As long as that objective is focused on and that objective is met, that's when we move on or that's how or that's what dictates my schedule. And, you know, to have command staff, and I know from being in law enforcement myself, uh, that command staff support to understand that, you know, you it has to have some flexibility on time. You can't just go, hey, in X amount of weeks, you guys are done, give the certificate out and get them on the road. Because you're going to constantly deal with or battle uh, various issues that weren't accomplished during the training cycle or the initiation training when you were getting yourself ready to get out on the road and become operational. So there, and there was also, you know, you and I had talked uh, before this started, and I want the listeners to hear your acronym. Uh, for failure, because one of the biggest things that, you know, you and I and many of these other programs have a fondness for is failure is an opportunity to learn. And unfortunately, in the dog world, uh, you know, we have this aversion to create training that may cause or have a failure because we're so afraid of the situation not working out or the dog not winning or the handler failing so handlers and or trainers avoid creating a training scenario or a training evolution that creates or a failure occurs and you can actually learn from it. So I'll let you kind of say what you're, how you guys define failure, the acronym you use, and then why you guys do it. Sure. So the acronym we use in our training programs for fail is first attempt in learning. So when you do have a failure, you learn from that failure. And actually, many times you learn more from your failures than your successes um, because you, they, they sting more. You're like, you know, I thought I was really good. I can't believe I missed that. Um, you know, my dog is so good. He's, he's great on odor. And, and yet, you know, during the search, I didn't see the bomb that was on the floor. Um, so, it's important for things like that to happen during training, um, that holy smokes moment um, that, that, again, yes, it might be a small failure in training, but it's in training. Um, and, and if you couple that with a real world type of training scenario, so what do we consider real world? So once these guys are trained, a lot of times um, the, the instructors will go out while they're on patrol uh, in the subway system. And they'll set up a training scenario at Times Square, um, in Penn Station, um, and other uh, crowded areas. And, you know, and we'll see what happens. But that's a real world live training scenario. There's nothing sterile about it. There's thousands of people moving all about you. 
um, incidents are still happening. Uh, incidents where you may have to take police action in the middle of your search. So if, if we do more scenarios like that, um, we feel that the guys feel more confident when they have to respond to a critical incident, um, like a, like the bombing that we had on December 11th of 2017, where the guy detonated himself in the subway tunnel. Our guys knew exactly what to do because we practice these things. Um, part of also training is, is the planning phase. And I know that has something to do with me as a canine commander and my supervisors as canine supervisors, but it's important before we deploy to discuss a deployment plan. What happens if something should occur? And that goes all the way back to September 11th, where the NYPD and the fire department threw everything in the kitchen sink at the World Trade Center. And then when the towers collapsed, most of our resources were gone in that collapse. So we talk about evolution, but we want to we want to program it into our handlers. We want to program into them that we don't want them all rushing to the scene of something. That's part of training as well. How you're going to respond to something, um, where you're going to go, if there's predetermined locations, or um, in a critical incident, once you get there, what do you do? Who, what is it, what is the first thing you should do? What's the second thing you should do? Who should you contact when you get there? What's your function when you get there in a crowded city like New York City, where there's literally thousands of cops around you and there's people from all ranks that are telling you, you, you got a dog, come over here. I want time out. What is your function in that madness? Um, and that's part of having a response plan built into the training. And where do you implement that? In training. In training so that when you throw a real world scenario or when you go out there and you tell them, okay, bang, something just went off. This is where you are. This is why I said, um, like, and I cited that example on December 11th, um, 2017 with the, the, the attempted suicide bomber in the subway in Times Square. We had two guys that were on the scene. They knew exactly what to do. They knew exactly what not to do. When, when a police commander grabbed them and said, you, there's a guy that's in that tunnel with a half blown out vest. I want you to search that vest and tell me if it's a bomb. <laughs> yeah, I remember you talking no about lie. that. No lie, that happened. Uh, but that's not the only incident. And, 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 and we had evolved to that point where the handler was able, a handler was able to tell somebody who was 10 ranks above him, uh, chief, this may not be a good idea and here's why. Uh, and that takes a high level of confidence when you're talking to someone 10 ranks above you or when you're talking to, uh, to somebody from another agency who's telling you to do something that you know you shouldn't be doing. But because of your training, your real world training, because of things that we've taken from other real world critical incidents, our responses are getting better and better and better and more efficient. Um, just tell me when you're ready, because I'd like to discuss something that happened during another critical one, incident. One thing I want to mention in regards to training, no, Cameron, mm -hmm. is that what we did do is design a training system. So the training system is just, it's the same staff monitoring all the canine teams in the unit. So we know exactly 
we're all on the same page as far as training, handling, uh, response. We all comp we compensate for all that. So if we do have an issue of, of any kind, whether it's a handling issue, a dog issue, a response issue, all that is easily cleared up fast because all our canine teams are monitored together in the same system. And I think that that, and that system is supported from the lowest level in our unit to the highest level. So I think that that's something that that continuity is something that all departments should have because it seems like the problems arise when canine handlers go off on their own and they're either not confident about what they want to do or don't understand what they should be doing. And I think that they need something consistent to instruct them on it. So we try to provide that to all the handlers and we want it to be um, an environment where they're comfortable asking if they, if they don't know the answer to something. And that's something that's that's important, I think. Yeah, no, and you guys bring up a very critical aspect, which is, you know, we talk, we've, you know, dog training gets focused on dogs, but I wanted to ask an important question, which is selection of the handler. We, we know, we've brought up already here, you know, the education of the handler and how important that is. How do you guys go about selecting the right person to begin with that can go into my second part of my question, which I'll get into as soon as you're done with this one, somebody that has the ability to critically think, especially under stress. And, you know, just like we select a dog, there are things that we do to help us ensure that we have the right dog. What have you guys learned or what are things that you guys find successful in the selection of the right handler for a program like this? So, um, Cameron, as far as that goes, again, we've evolved over the last 15 years where we've learned a lot. Um, the handler selection is, is, is as important as selecting the right canine. Now, and I'll just talk about the handler selection process first, and then I'm going to hand it over to Randy because really, again, it goes back to the training and the instructions and what they do with by creating a team from scratch. And a team consists of a properly selected handler with a properly selected dog for that handler. So, but selecting the proper handler in, in our uh, unit uh, consists of, number one, we, we do a job posting online. Now remember, BNYPD has a, a police, we're a police force of about 35,000 people. Um, so when we put out a job posting, we give them a certain number of weeks to get back to us that they're interested. When they do, they have to complete an online application um, which lists their accomplishments, what they hope to achieve in canine. Um, we do a thorough background check on the candidate because with a agency our size, you just don't know everybody. It's not it's too big of an agency. We're like a small city. So background check. Um, and then before it even comes to us, um, when it's still at police headquarters, they do a certain type of background check where they weed out people that have a very poor um, sick history or a disciplinary history that gets weeded out. Then I get the applications and me and my staff start to process them. One of the first things we do is we send the, the, the prospective handlers to get a medical exam from a physician. Um, 
And this is important because if they don't get a doctor's note that they can handle the physical, which is outlined within the application, then they don't go on to the next step, which is the physical assessment uh, test, the PAT. So once they're cleared medically by a doctor, then they, uh, they proceed and we schedule them for the physical assessment test. During this physical assessment test, we have um, the first thing we do is they have to take four bites from four trained dogs and they have to work the dog a certain way. Um, each element of the physical assessment test measures different, um, different things. It, like, for example, the bite work measures the ability to follow instruction and work under duress and take direction while working under duress. Um, and it's extreme. It's, it's very physical. Um, and, and the application, there's, there's a line on the application when they're first applying that says, are you afraid of dogs? I have never in 15 years seen anyone put that they're afraid of dogs on the application. Out of thousands of candidates, no one ever admits the, the fact that they may be afraid of dogs. Well, that first exercise, you can clearly see if someone's afraid of dogs. And, and it's fine. You know, like it's it's perfectly normal to be afraid of something you've never done before, having a dog chomp down on your arm. Um, but can you work through that? Can you work through the physical stresses of, of working the dog backwards in a back and forth motion while taking direction from from an instructor who's telling you what to do? Can you make it physically through four bites? We find that um, we lose probably, a, I would say, about a third or 40 percent of our candidates on the dog bites because we tell them up front, listen, this isn't for everybody. And we tell them in a nice way, if this isn't for you, just tell us. This is this is what this physical agility test uh, assessment test is designed to to, you know, figure out. Is this for you and are you for us? Very simple. There's no shame in it. Um, so if somebody quits on the dog bites, that's it. You know, they don't go on with the rest of the uh, the physical assessment test. The next part of the physical assessment test, they wear a ballistic helmet a heavy ballistic vest, and then there's uh, three different timed exercises that they have to do. Um, a simulated subway platform climb, a, a simulated manual release of an animal, and, um, and a, a simulated um, emergency subway exit where the, the handler is running up two, two sets of stairs, picks up a, a, a simulated wounded animal, runs up two more flights of stairs and out to a waiting car. That's also a timed exercise. And then in the end, we finish with the uh, mile and a half run, which is based according to the age and sex of the person applying. Now, for those that get through the physical, they have to attain a certain score to go on to the next phase. The next phase is the oral interview. The oral interview happens at headquarters. Um, the panel includes uh, myself, uh, Sergeant Brenner, who's the head of the training staff, it includes my boss, who's the head of transit special operations. It includes a representative from the chief of personnel, chief of department, and the police commissioner's office. So it's a, a six or a seven member panel. And during that panel interview, which is unlike what most people do um, to get into specialized units in the NYPD, um, we, we ask a lot of questions of the candidate. We have a lot of the answers to the questions that we're asking. If we see anything in the candidate's record that we're concerned about, we'll ask about it. Um, the sick history plays a lot with us because, and I explain this a lot, if, although the NYPD has unlimited sick, um, if I see a pattern of, of a sick history, 
I won't take somebody into the unit um, because when they go sick, I lose them and their dog. So I'm not looking for people that chronically play the system um, uh, to, to, to be sick and stay home. Um, another thing that we do in the oral interview is we, we do scenario-based questions where we put props into the room and we test the candidate's ability to do basic functions, uh, how to handle a suspicious package, not as a canine handler, but as a police officer, um, how to turn off power in the subway, something basic. How to, how to secure your lead. After we demonstrate how to do it, we hand over a lead and we say, okay, secure your lead. There's other scenario-based questions that we do in there as well. Um, and then we take the oral interview score, which is averaged out based on the six panel members. We take the physical score and we combine them and we make a canine list. So when we need candidates, we pull off the list based on the highest score. Now, here's the thing. Just because you make the list doesn't mean you'll get into the unit. If we do call you into the unit, you're temporarily assigned for one year. And initially, you won't get a dog right away. We're not going to just bring people in and throw them into a class. We'll bring people in before we anticipate doing the class because we want to see what these candidates are about. We want them to do kennel duty. We want them to do things around the base to become familiar with the way things work here. Um, I like to say that our environment in my unit is different than the rest of the police department. We're more like a firehouse where we're all dependent on each other to do certain things. And if you're new to the unit, you're expected to pull your weight and show your worth to the unit. There's certain tasks that are assigned to you. And believe it or not, that acts as a weeding out process. Um, out of the last five classes that we've put in, only one class have we not sent someone back to their command. Um, so usually there's someone that, that is not a good fit for the unit and goes back. We have a year to decide. And that's a pretty long period of time considering it's a 20-year career. That's 120th of someone's career to decide are you a good fit or not. So these are things that we learned over the years that have helped us to create better handlers. But Randy's going to talk about what happens once they're in there. And once we've selected that person. So once once we get them in training, we what we have to do is we have to send the curriculum up to the state. Every one of our handlers is state certified in the end by New York State Department of Criminal Justice. So we send a curriculum up to the state. We get it approved by the state. We have it sent back and then we start a class. Usually I have a ratio of one to four. It's one instructor and four trainees. Um, four handlers in a class. Um, like the lieutenant said, at that point, you, you, each and every one of them understands that um, the dog process, the selection of who gets which dog is going to be done strictly by the instructor. I don't get involved in it at all. It's strictly by the instructor training them. So if we have brand new handlers, of course, when we select them, we can't really get a, a gauge yet on how they're going to perform with a specific dog when we select them. If we have retreads, we can. Um, but if we have brand new handlers, we can't. So what we do is, is, is we'll select them. And then, like I said earlier, we'll shuffle the deck if we have to. So we give them strict instructions. Um, the first thing we do before we, we want to send the dogs home as fast as possible because we want that bonding process to be solid. 
So what we do is, is we do a home inspection. Um, the instructional staff will always do a home inspection first just to document and make sure that the environment where we're sending the dog is sufficient and that the family and the handler is totally uh, and completely not confused about the process and the instructions that, that are given to them um, in regards to training. Because if, they, if they're not following the instructions to the letter when training starts, we're gonna notice it right away during the training process. And that's another thing with uh, building them up together. That's something that we'll notice if the handler is not following instructions, it'll come out during training very fast. Mm -hmm. um, then we almost immediately start the imprinting process. And um, that's, you know, usually it doesn't, of course, it's gonna look like a disaster the first few days, the first few weeks, it might look like a disaster. But the instructor has to evaluate each individual canine team based on performance and based on how they're progressing. What we want to see, what's most important in a class like that, what we want to see is progress. It really doesn't matter how much progress as long as there is progress. Um, if we go backward, then it's going to take the trainer or the instructor, it's going to take them that much more work on that specific person and time to get them back up to the starting line. So we don't want to ever go backward. And that's where we would start to maybe take a harder look at the person and being that they're temporarily assigned, decide whether they can learn it or they can't learn it. Like the Lieutenant said earlier, there's no shame in it. It's not for everybody and there's no shame in not being able to do it for whatever reason or not wanting to do it because you didn't realize how much work it actually is. But what we do want to see is progression. So if we do see the progression, it is worth spending the time because a lot of times what we have is, is a handler that does well right out of the gate gets surpassed by a handler who puts a little bit more work into it, who needs more work and puts a little bit more work into it but each one would have to be evaluated individually. And then we try to graduate them all together in the end. So we try to keep the progression together as much as we possibly can. So in the end of the course, we could graduate them all together. Um, uh, most of the time we're able to get through the problems. We're able to work through them. Uh, time is not an issue. So we do spend the time, but we want to see the progression for the time. So that's what's important. Um, we start as basic as, as we possibly can, and then we graduate to more and more challenging training type scenarios as we get further along in the course. Um, and it, it tends to it tends to the handlers seem to pick it up once it clicks. Uh, they seem to pick it up. But the important part is is for them to progress. I can't stress that enough. Sure. So that's what we need out of that. I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canines Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. 
What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find. And it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input. Uh, as with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canine's Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. You guys are pretty much in your division all single-purpose dogs, or do you guys also have some bite dogs? No, we do have dual-purpose dogs. Okay. I'll let that so, um, Cameron, we do have uh, multi-purpose dogs, as I call them. Mm-hmm. In New York State, a, a patrol dog is certified in patrol, uh, building searches, evidence recovery, and tracking. 
So it's kind of like two dogs in one. Sure. Um, what we initially do is we always start with the explosives. Um, the training staff feels that it's best to start out with the explosives. Um, Randy can explain that to you in a minute. And then on certain handlers, um, I mean, all the dogs are selected to be multi-purpose dogs. But once a handler is trained to be an explosive handler, we let that gel for a little bit. And we want to see what kind of handler we have before we add a multi-purpose role to it, like adding explosives and patrol to it or explosives and then an enhanced type of explosive because we have other advanced programs uh, within the explosives realm itself. So we have like three major um, uh, advanced programs. They could either advance into a multi-purpose school where they're explosive, single-purpose explosive, and then we we make them multi-purpose by adding the patrol concept to it. Um, they can go on to our tread program, which is uh, basically advanced electronics harness detection system program, or they can go on into our PSC program, our passenger screening canine um, program. Mm-hmm. Again, each team is selected based on what myself, m- mostly the instructors think would be a good fit for um, the, the discipline that we want to add to that team. So we do have other specialties um, after explosive school, but our bread and butter is explosives detection. Okay. And with, so you guys kind of do the detection part first and then get into the patrol part secondary, typically, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. We want to get the independence out of the You got, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. We don't want to do anything to hinder the independent search of the dog. Mm -hmm. And, That's why I'm very selective about who we add the second portion to, because we don't want to ruin a good product. So if we have a good product and we don't think that it's going to be a positive effect on the dog, if we do multi-purpose the dog, then we leave it alone. What we try to do is, is again, it's an evaluation on who we think or what we think dog is right for it. So it's got to be dog and handler together, and they got to be selected based on them having the right makeup uh, during training and how they progressed over the year. So we usually, there's a time lapse. So after we're done with the initial detection training portion, we wait to see how they progress. And if they're progressing in a way that we think that they can handle the next portion of training, then we'll do that. But we're very selective about who we do it with. Because we know when we put something in, we're going to take something out. Mm-hmm. And that uh, the, the dog and the handler are going to go through a phase. And it's a phase that we're going to have to work through. And they have to be a strong enough canine team in, in, according, uh, in order to accomplish what they need to accomplish to get through that phase that we know we're going to go through when, when we do it. So that's something that, that we have to be very careful about. Um, Especially because we're working in an environment where we're not working on a set stage. We have these dogs out in public. They have to be able to be controlled by the handler at all times. They're not dogs that are reactive. They're proactive policing dogs. So they're out in the public all the time. And we want to make sure that the handler and the dog can handle the environment they're in together in order to be effective on a daily basis. Yeah. So one of the things you brought up that I I really want to talk about a little bit more is 
search management. What are some of the things that you guys preach and teach that helps teams become proficient uh, in that skill of search management? The biggest thing that that I like to stress when we do search management is uh, breaking down search patterns. So each dog would have a different tolerance on uh, what their performance is and what their how long they're actually searching for. So the handler would have to compensate for how strong his dog is during that search. So what we want the handler to do is not waste the dog in certain areas where he doesn't have to waste the dog. We want him to look at the landscape and be able to break down the search almost like a computer where a computer would do dots in their head on how we're going to search in order to get the best search out of the area to know where he searched, to know not to repeat searching in a specific area, to know not to go back and search the same thing too many times in order to hit the productive areas where, where we know that the possibilities might, might be greater than in other areas. These are things that we want to search with, that we want to stress all the way through. Um, another thing is visuals that we concentrate on. So if, if uh, dogs tend to, dogs do visuals. They actually see what, what they see, they might actually indicate on, even though they're not using their, their nose. We want the handler to be conscious of that. That would be a situation where, yes, let them, let us see during training some type of failure where the dog uses his eyes instead of his nose, and we get to correct that right there, there and then at training. Um, dogs do do that. We all know that they do that. One thing that, that we noticed that we did when we did uh, people searches in the subway system is that dogs generalize the scent. So we would send a blank decoy through Times Square subway station in the middle of rush hour where there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people and the dog would pick out a blank decoy. How is the dog picking out a blank decoy um, in, a, in a subway station that, that that's densely populated like that? Because they're picking up on a probably another scent that has to do with us, whether it's our car, whether it's the smell of our base, whether it's the smell of something where the dogs recognize the scent and indicate on the blank decoy. And that's something that we have to work out during training. So we stopped doing it that way and had the decoys meet us out at the location in order to compensate for that. Sure. These are things that I definitely want to see during training and I want the handlers to see too, to understand the possibilities of how to manage their dogs and what their specific dogs do during training. And that's all part of search management. Yeah, because one of the things that happens often with explosive dog teams uh, is search times and the ability to search extended periods of times and still be efficient. You guys, obviously, like, like we all know, have a very uh, complicated and complex environment with a lot of things going on, distractions and so forth. How do you guys address search times? How do you guys enhance this? What are some things that you guys do to, you know, kind of keep that team from kind of falling into the lull of, you know, 
the the beat type of search you know you know it happens out here you know i'm in vegas obviously so you know we have lots of teams that work casinos and things like that and one of the things you kind of have to you know navigate through is the kind of like being the tsa person looking at the screen constantly you know x amount of uh minutes before you have to change out and to maintain that vigilance so what are some things that you guys do to kind of ensure that your team stay vigilant for search times so there's there's a couple of different things that we learned over the years, especially with critical incidents. Um, one of the things that I did the night of the Chelsea bombings in Manhattan is I prepared for that. I prepared for dogs getting burnt out. And the way I did that was, and 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 I reinforced this afterwards during my my hot wash is I don't give them all my assets at the same time because if I do. Everything's get, unless the situation calls for it, and that would be for me to determine um, at the time. This is where good canine supervision comes in. So initially what I did was I had eight teams working that night. Um, I sent four to the scene of the incident, led by a, a supervisor who was the first on the scene who started uh, immediately searching according to our predetermined plan, staging areas, triage areas, and things like that. And I kept the other half of my forces um, north and south of the location because I knew what would happen, that other jobs would come up because as you guys saw from, from Las Vegas and in other places, when something happens, people are quick to call in suspicious activity to other parts. But it keeps, it, I kept half my forces fresh. Um, and then this is something we do regularly too on a day-to-day -day basis, I'll pair up two handlers and we call it the one up, one down system where the ha one handler will have his dog in the vehicle and then the, and the two handlers will be out with one dog. And if the dog gets burnt out, they'll switch up so that there's always a fresh dog. That's on a daily deployment. But at a critical incident, it's up to the supervisor to say, hey, wait a minute. OK, what do you need me to do? All right. Let me figure out how many dogs it's going to take. And I still have to keep dogs in reserve because of those other incidents that may arise. So um, there was another incident besides the Chelsea. So let me get back to the Chelsea bombing. Sure. So that night, I, I initially sent four down there. And then there came a period of time where they found the second device. Um, and it was clear now that it was a pattern. So now they wanted more sweeps. Well, they asked us to sweep a one square mile grid of Manhattan, which you're talking about, again, one of the densest urban environments in the Western Hemisphere. And I had eight dogs to do that. So I had eight dogs to go from 8th Avenue to 5th Avenue, 14th Street to 34th Street. It's, it's just, it's not logistically possible to do that. And it certainly wouldn't have been possible if I committed all eight teams to that. So one of the things that I learned that night and we implemented later on as a learning moment is I implemented without knowing it, a multi-agency canine command post, which was me walking around with a piece of paper and touching base with all the other canine units that night. Um, later on in subsequent incidents, we formalized it with, with a, an actual command post where we, where we moved, where we combined our resources so that we're, we weren't replicating tasks. So getting back to how I handled it that night, I took my reserve pool, I brought them down, and I also um, requested help from the other canine teams from other agencies that we normally train with. And that's another important aspect of training. 
training with the agencies that you're actually going to deploy with, whether that's private security, other agencies in your area. New York City has so many agencies. It's the NYPD, the Port Authority Police, the MTA Police, New Jersey Transit, Amtrak Police. Well, we train with all of them, the, the New York State Police. This makes it easier for us to integrate what we do, and it, it, it expands our resources, um, especially when it comes to canine, because as you know, it's a limited resource. So that night, I was able to pool resources from other canine units and divvy up the assignments so that we swept that one square mile grid to the best of our ability with between 12 and 16 canine teams um, from my agency and other agencies as well. So that's why it's important to train before these events happen. It's also important to pre-plan the management of it, the, the on-scene canine management, which again, really doesn't happen outside of, I guess, this region. I haven't seen it too much in other regions. It's pretty much in other regions, each canine team does whatever their, their agency tells them. And that's great. That's great, but if we can somehow get that all together so that we're not tripping over each other, yeah, okay, New York State Police, you wanna check this? All yours. Um, Amtrak, you wanna do that? Great, just let me know what you're doing so we're not doing the same things. But Randy has something to add too. But yeah, Cameron, what we do do during training to compensate for things like that is we do a ton of flag searches, so you're not always gonna get a positive. That's something that I think is super important that um, everybody yeah to do everywhere is you need to do blank searches. Um, if the dogs expect the positive on every search, you're going to have a problem. Uh, so that's something that we always do. We vary the lengths of the searches. So we're not always doing short searches. We do very lengthy searches a lot of times. And the handlers know, just be confident in your dog, be confident in yourself. And whatever your dog and yourself tells you, that's, that's what you follow. Um, and then we vary the weight, of course, and everybody should vary the weight, vary the weight and the different types of uh, training aids that we put out. So those three things, I think, are, are super important to trust. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, go ahead. Cameron? Yeah. It, during, during like large scale deployments, like the Thanksgiving parade or New Year's Eve or, or a large parade, uh, like the gay parade in New York, which goes for a very long um it has a very long route. Those days tend to be long and tedious. Again, that's where the instructors come in. They'll go out, they'll set something up on your route with, without you knowing, and then they'll show up and say, okay, you know, run your dog. So uh, that's another thing that our instructors do for these long protracted uh, deployments that require us to be out there for, for hours. Um, that's another way we, we, get the dog interested because again, like at the New York City Marathon, after searching um, 20 or 30 empty buses, uh, you know, and then your dog come across, comes across something and you see that head snap, your dog's like, oh, wow, wait a minute. This, you know, there's actually something out here. And then, and then your dog gets energized again. But I also want to emphasize what Randy said too. The blanks are important too you know, telling your dog, Hey, you're not always going to find something and that's okay. Yeah, no. And one of the things that I'm a big advocate of is exactly what Randy said is, you know, we would call, you know, control negatives or blank searches because as we all know, 
when you're evaluating a team, uh, whether it be certification or just your maintenance training, it takes a, it's a lot harder to walk out of an area and say, and be confident and say, there's nothing here than it is to be able to search and find something. You know, we, we all know many handlers know their dogs. They can read their dogs. It's that extended search or it's that uh, complexity of a search and then walk out of it and have nothing. And the handler's not coming out going, well, um, there's, so my dog showed me some interest over here. And then, and over there, there was, you know, that you can hear when there's handlers that are confident and when there's handlers that are not. And there's obviously any number of different reasons for that uh, insecurity or unsureness about their search. But the more that they address this and they use controlled negatives to kind of overcome those problems. And honestly, that's what builds confidence is to walk out of environments like that and say, nope, nothing here. And uh, I'm glad, you know, obviously you guys are a big program, but just good to keep sharing that information to canine teams to know, practice this, do it blind too. do, you know, you don't, when you show up to training, you don't know if there's gonna be something there or not there, just navigate your search area and handle it. Exactly. So the one of the other things that's kind of, uh, you know, it gets it's done a lot in the bomb world, which is the odor recognition testing. And I tell handlers, I'm like, you know, I used to fight it way back in the day. And I used to think ATF was stupid for doing it and all that kind of stuff. But what I learned was the value of the baseline it provides. It also allows you to work, you know, in, in a controlled setting with proofing, distracting odors, and as well as your target odor. And in that baseline or calibration, as I like to term it, is you can identify problems in a nice controlled way and figure out, oh, look, the dog really likes this odorant or this dog is a little bit weaker in this substance potentially. So we know we may need to work on this. Uh, how, do you guys utilize that? And if so, how often? How does that work for you guys? Constantly. Uh, we do odor recognition very, very frequently. I won't say we do it every single day but it's very very frequent and what we also now that's something that we do at our facility that's usually set up where uh if one of the one of the trainers is doing maintenance inside the building usually odor recognition is set up and even if a handler's not in training on that day or assigned to training the handlers always have an option to run their dog on odor recognition inside the building if they want to before they go out or um, uh, any time that we have it out for any reason. The other thing we do is, is we put, I think, 40 of our teams through ATF NORT, which mm -hmm. they all no problem passing. Um, we did do that. We usually do that once a year. Uh, we always do that. And all the, all the certifications that we do usually start with odor recognition, yep. too. So a lot of our teams do USPCA. Uh, we we do the Region 7 trials, and a lot of us do the Nationals. That always starts with odor recognition. And our state test starts with odor recognition, too. So if you, don't, if you can't pass odor recognition, then you're not moving on to the next portion of the test. Amen. If Correct. One, if one of our handlers can't get through a basic odor recognition, we would ground the canine team and send them back into training. Absolutely. No, and it's it's such an overlooked thing. You know, it, it's one of those things. Now, do you, just out of curiosity, I mean, I know we're talking bomb dogs here, but I've been preaching this a lot to drug dog handlers. This helps them kind of protect themselves from legal scrutiny 
it's a great way to say, hey, look, here's documentation. I'm doing a odor recognition test where I'm putting out proofing and distracting odors. My dog's not alerting to aspirin powder or baby powder or whatever, you know, cutting agent that might be present, or my dog's not alerting to evidence bags or tape or any number of the ways that the narcotics are packaged. For you guys, do you know if your other programs in NARC or other ones around you guys utilize a odor recognition test for narcotics dogs? Yeah, I'm pretty confident that I could speak for the department where we do, we all five canine units are decent and do do odor recognition on a regular basis. We, as a department, we wouldn't, we wouldn't send dogs out that, that are not proficient in odor recognition. So if your dog can't find it in a simple delivery system like a can, your dog's not going to find it any, <laughs> any complicated uh, form or any other complicated situation. So yes, we make sure everybody's on odor. And that, that's my mindset behind sending them through the NORC test when they come to town or when it's available to us is because it's another piece of documentation in court that we could say, we do this and we, 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 that this is how confident we are with our dogs on odor. We do this test, we do this certification, with, which consists of just odor recognition. Mm -hmm. Then our state test consists, starts with odor recognition. Then the USPCA test trials start with odor recognition. Yeah. So the one consistent thing in all the certifications that we have, and yes, that's absolutely a very important, crucial part of courtroom testimony. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, like I said, you know, when I was doing this years and years ago, when I first saw it, I was, you know, a naysayer as well. And then over the years, I became much more of a proponent for it. And of course, now I end up voicing it quite a bit just because, you know, as we all know, we both, we all three of us have been around long enough to see so many shy away from it because they're afraid of something different. And if they embrace it, it only makes them better, bolsters their ability to, you know, document uh, the proficiency of their dog under these various different types of conditions, or I say in this case, odorants that are available. Um, and again, just solidifies when that dog indicated on whatever deployment they did, the only reason that dog indicated was because odor was present and it was the target odor, not some distracting odor. And they don't have to be fearful of, you know, rewarding their dog because, you know, as we all know, there's also the fear of, well, I'm afraid on a real search to do anything. There's various reasons why I'll, I'll mitigate some of that stuff or I may not do a primary or what, you know, how we want to handle that. But my dog will always know it's right when it gives an indication. And I'm confident in that indication because of my training, my baseline, what I've done to prepare for that. So that way, when my dog does indicate, I'm not walking away going, well, I think there's something there, but I'm afraid because of, you know, they have to get out of that. They have to be willing to push that training like we talked and it's about. A good way to, it's a good way to measure certain things. It's a good way to measure how to slow down a search. So a mm -hmm. lot of times, it will, will get the dog. The dog's so excited. The dog wants to search and all it's doing is cans and it goes to can one and it misses it because it's can one. Mm -hmm. You know, we could, we could slow it down that way. At least we could let the handler see it. Yeah. Let the handler see what happens when the dog charges into the search and how to set the dog up for a successful search. Yeah, without um, a doubt. And it's a good way. It's a low amount of odor usually. Mm -hmm. So that's another good thing. You're practicing on a low amount of odor. Mm -hmm. So it gives you a, a good range of threshold to a uh, small amount of odor to big amount of odor. 
And a lot of times we do blank searches with odor recognition too. Absolutely. It's a great way to show the control. Hey, look, the dog showed me nothing because nothing was present. You can't ask for any more better definition uh, in a space than that. So it's not indicating on just the visual of a row or something. You got it. Absolutely. No. And, and you're bringing up another point, which I'll bring into is data and records keeping, because there's a lot of programs out there and there's different ways people maybe track what they do or they don't track what they do. How important, because I look at this as one of the reasons why canine units may live or die or fail or succeed is based on the data they are able to provide to their supervisors, to their city, to whatever their accountability is. Um, showing their proficiency and you know, and it runs the gamut from, you know, and I, I'll break it into sections, you know, obviously the law enforcement world is, is more attuned to keeping track of records, but I've seen um, other programs, whether it be some of the more niche ones or search and rescue or what have you that uh, don't track data like the law enforcement segment does, but talk about a little bit like what you guys you know, track and why you guys are tracking it and how important that data collection is for a canine team? Well, we're mandated by New York State to do a certain amount of hours per quarter of canine training, and that's a mandate. So we start with that, and that's our baseline. So our baseline is is 24 hours per quarter, and that's very low amount of training for each individual canine team. Um, it's 24 hours per quarter, and that's in each discipline. So if we have a multi-purpose, 48 hours of training. But that's only what the state requires. Mm -hmm. And both myself and Lieutenant Pappas have discussed it, and we both agree that that's definitely not enough training, but it's what the state requires, and it's not it's not on the state to run a canine unit. We run a canine unit. The state doesn't run a canine unit. They just have their mandated amount of training. So what we want to do is we want to put much more training sessions on top of that 24 hours per quarter. So we have a we have a, a, a whiteboard in my office where we log all the dates. So if I wanted to look at it quickly, I could just look at it quickly and I could see what each and every canine handler in the unit, where their training dates are and how many they've done per quarter. So that's the easy part. But the, the data tracking that you're talking about, much more of what you're, what you're speaking about, is what we do in in-service training on a daily basis. And that we created our own electronic version of it. So yes, I know that there's different um, programs now that you could subscribe to that track your canine training. Um, we wanted more of a customized version for us so what we do is, is we have an electronic version where the canine handler goes in and logs what he did during training. And the canine handler comments and the canine instructor comments. So both of us comment on the training sheet after an in-service session. And that gets logged electronically in, a, in an electronic file. And this way we have access to it. Um, the supervision has access to it. And the instructional staff has access access to it, and we could compensate for anything we need to compensate based on those training records. In addition to that, yes, we could use them in if we wanted to use them for whatever reason in a lawsuit situation or a situation to uh, track what our canine handlers are doing. So we could 
um, we might get pointed questions from our own police department in regards to what our, our canine proficiency is, what our training records are, and um, we could always refer to them. We always have access and we can always refer to what each one is doing. And, and Cameron, I just want to add something too. In addition to keeping track, uh, to keeping tracking the data for, from, from training, there's another element of data that's, that's important. It's actually still considered training data. Um, a lot of times supervision management um, wants to know about productivity. So periodically we'll get a new chief who says, who will say, well, what do you guys do? <laughs> um, and that's where I keep track and we keep meticulous records of our canine utilizations. Anytime we use the canine for anything, and we use the canine a lot in transit canine, the handler uh, completes a canine utilization form. Um, and with these canine utilization forms, I can turn around and say, well, Chief, you know, last year we did uh, 12,000 canine utilizations. Of those, um, uh, 3,000 were sweeps for explosives, um, 2,000 were directed patrols, we had uh, 4,000 unattended articles. That's what they understand. They understand statistics. They understand uh, liability. They understand money, how much money you're saving them or not or costing them. So, but again, productivity is something that, that, that is measurable. How many times do you use your dog? Because should there be a lawsuit? Yes, they're going to look at the training records, but productivity records as well. Wait a minute. Not only do you, tr you've done all this training and you're certified to do X, Y, and Z, you mean to tell me you officer or we designation, canine designation, I don't know, canine 54, canine 54, you've done 2000 utilizations year to date. Well, that's a lot. How many have you done over your career? Oh, you've done, you know, 10,000 canine utilizations with this dog mm -hmm. and you've never had an incident. You've never had a bad bite. You've never had a, uh, uh, any negative incidents with this dog. That's pretty impressive. And those, that productivity data, like I said, yes, it's a management tool, but it's also a, a liability defense tool. And it's also um, yeah, a liability defense tool. And it's also considered a training record as well. Um, so I wanna also, in addition to uh, training records, also consider productivity records as data for training records as well. It's, it, they're two separate it, things, but they're really the same thing as well, especially if, if there's a lawsuit or any question from a, a higher rank about your unit and what it does. And well, why do I need 145 canine teams in the New York City Police Department? Why can't I have 50? Well, here's why. Here's the, the data that tells you why you need to have this. Here's why these teams are productive. Here's what they do. And then where does that productivity fit into the mission of the unit or the bureau that you're assigned to? Because again, there's different canine units for different functions in the New York City Police Department because they have different missions. Um, that's why a lot of times people wonder, well, why? Why do you guys have five canine units? Because we have five different missions. Each unit has its specific mission, but when we need them to, all the units come together during a critical incident, a large scale deployment. Yeah, we pool our resources together and there's a function for everybody there. So um, I just wanna add that productivity data is also important in addition to training data. Oh, for sure. And 
So, you know, as I wrap this up, what, um, obviously, you know, I always try to keep handlers thinking about and understanding that our detection dog world is, is evolving and the practice or utilizing best practices, uh, such as what we talked about, the, uh, odor recognition testing to conducting, you know, numerous blind searches, searches with nothing there, um, how do you guys or what are you guys seeing as part of this evolution in detection dogs and what should handlers do to stay moving forward versus doing the typical, you know, training of four boxes and, and odor and then running over to, you know, just doing five rooms, two hides. What are things that you guys would recommend to, to handlers to keep moving forward and evolving within this detection community as, as science and things are becoming much more readily available to us? Um, well, I'll start off and I'll let Randy finish it. For me, as, as a canine commander, um, especially here in New York City, I want to vary the training and I want to train with as many canine people as I possibly can. Um, we don't know everything. I always start on that premise. Yes, we've, we've got a lot of experience, but we learn from everybody and every training session that we go to. Um, so I believe that going to training sessions where there's other canine handlers, other canine units from different agencies, or doing a very large scale joint training session like we did uh, last October. We did one with 300 canine teams from all over the region um, simultaneously. Doing these large scale training sessions is critical. Um, introducing other canine teams that are not part of our agency, like teaching, is important too because there's an aha moment for them. But then during these teaching moments, the teachers also learn a lot from the students by watching and observing them. So I always start with the prem premise, we don't know anything. We'll, go, we'll come to you with our glass empty. Um, please fill it for us. Please show us the, the way you do something because I may learn from it. But Randy, I have my training staff involved in a lot, a lot of um, large scale training, especially with other agents. I'll let Randy talk about that. So what we do, Cameron, is, is right off the top of my head twice a year, we work with the uh, Department of Homeland Security State Preparedness Center in uh, Riskany, New York. And what we do is we have two things, we have two big events that involve canine there a year. Um, one of them is, is called uh, Excelsior, where what we do is, is we get not only canine teams, we put together task forces. And in the task forces are a, um, a bomb squad, uh, tactical teams and canine teams, and we put them together on task forces and we have them respond to real world scenarios and we're fully equipped to design the scenarios. We take about six months. We start it usually um, in, in right after the winter, we start planning the event and then we have the event in the fall. And what we do is, is we get instructional staffs from all over the state and we make them sites, uh, site instructors, and we design the scenarios, and we let everybody respond like they would in a real-world scenario. This way, the decision to how to deploy is left up to the teams, the task force, is, and each individual task force would be different on what decisions that they make on the same scenarios. So each one would run the same scenarios on different days, but the decisions on what to do 
in the scenarios are different. And what that does is it teaches um, the canine handlers, the bomb technicians, and the TAC teams, it teaches them how to work together on deployments. The other thing that we do is after the scenario, we break up into skill lanes. So the canine instructors will have their people in one skill lane, the bomb technicians will have their people in another skill lane, and the tactical teams have their people in another skill lane. So we break them up so they can each get a little bit more out of the training, not just the scenario, it just in case, well, we didn't use canine on this scenario because we didn't think it was a, a situation where we would deploy canine teams. So we make sure that everybody gets enough out of it. Um, the other thing that we do is called Canine Week, where now it's just dedicated to canine alone, and we do that in the same center. Um, and we work with the Secret Service. Like this year, I worked a scenario with the Secret Service, and what I learned is is that we we do that we do our searches opposite of how they do their searches. So that's something that I never really thought about. It makes sense when you think about it because they're protecting the principal. They do a search from the inside out and we do a search from the outside in. And when you start pulling it apart, it made a lot more sense. So it was fun to see how, what the, most of our, the people that we were instructing were police canine handlers. And it, but police canine handlers get utilized in a lot of dignitary type scenarios. So it was fun to watch and see how they handled it when we gave them a scenario and we prepped them for it by saying, we know how you're trained and we know, but let's have some fun. You know, let's think about it a little bit differently. And it gives them a different look on, on their dog. Again, search management. How do I manage my way through a search that's different than the one I'm traditionally used to? Um, so that's another thing that we did. And it, it, it was, it, the way it played out was, was, was actually fun to watch. So we're involved in all these things on a regular basis, just like the lieutenant said. We also do regional training days where we set up from uh, New York to New Jersey and we get all the canine teams together and we do different sites. Everybody can move around to different sites and we do a regional training day, which is, which is each of them moving around to different scenarios to experience different things. And again, we have all the instructors set up on the sites. So those are things that uh, canine deployments have evolved over the years, and we want to, them to experience as much as possible. And you might get something out of a different agency's trainer or instructor that you wouldn't get out of your own. And we promote that. We want that. I want my handlers to run with other agencies, people that I know, because I want those handlers to get a different type of thought process and to ask me about it so we could elaborate on it and we could talk about it. But we do it all together, so it's monitored. Absolutely. And it's get out of your box, get out of your little your tribe or your little area and go out there and integrate and learn, not only in the canine aspect, but as you guys brought up, the importance of working with the other specialty you know, aspects that may be used. So obviously in the bomb world, you've got your EOD techs, you've got your tactical response teams. And then let's say in the search and rescue world, you have your investigative units where you might have a homicide investigator that needs a cadaver dog. Well, you guys need to be on the same page as to what is being done, how the crime scene's managed, 
all of those things. So, and then the narc guys getting with your narc units, because of course, a lot of times they call you with, uh, they want to use your dog and they have this unreal expectation that your dog is nothing but a can opener and gets them into any car they want. So, <laughs> you know, you got to, uh, get out there and, and integrate and, and, you know, don't fall in the trap of getting in the rut of just doing your own training aids, your own setups, you know, and it sounds like common sense, but, and we also know sometimes, uh, places have a difficulty of, you know, getting out into a new area because they're either landlocked or they're a small department or whatever, but we all highly encourage and stress because many of us are very welcoming to other programs to come out and train with us. You know, none, you know, everybody I know is always all for, uh, bringing another, uh, individual or, Hey, you want to come out and train with us? Because not only does it help, you know, we get to use your training age, you get to use ours or the training venues that are different that someone has that my dogs aren't used to and so forth. So, you know, not only is it a science game, but also the importance of integrating. We also find that different dogs are different in different situations. And right off the top, top of my head, a tactical situation to see the way different dogs respond to a tactical detection situation when they're multi-purpose is an issue and it's something that you have to understand before it happens that your dog does so if you have to do a detection a detection search during a tactical situation just the tact team being present alone in a tactical situation could completely divert your dog from wanting to do that detection search and that's something that the handler has to see during training in order to know just in case he's faced with it in a real world uh, situation. Yeah, it was, it's one of the things I do quite a bit in the training out here in Vegas. We actually, we're going to be setting one up probably, uh, I'm going to say December, January timeframe, but integration of canine with robotics and drone, you know, because there might be a situation where the robot is deployed and up into an area and, and doing something or holding or whatever it's doing, and the dog still needs to get past it or around it or through it or whatever. Or there might be a, a small mini drone in an area just there for the surveillance aspect, but it creates that noise the dog's never heard before. and Or the dog might be able to see it visually because of its location. Can the dog work despite those distractors that are there? And it's one of the things that uh, a lot of programs don't get to get exposed to. So, um, you know, it was one of the things I brought up, you know, in a tactical thing because we did it quite a bit within... Uh, Naval Special Warfare was integrating, like you guys said, with your different specialty units and the tools that they have, and those might be present, and those might cause a distraction for a dog, which could take away its primary function of detecting and indicating to you when there's something there. Completely, and and when we do these large scale training uh, exercises, there's usually a drone hovering about for that reason, in addition to recording what we're doing so that we can view it later. So the drone thing is more and more prevalent. Uh, the robotic thing is something that, well, the bomb squad uses it um, at Operation Excelsior that they do uh, upstate. So the dogs are exposed to it. Now, um, I'm sure you've seen them, these robotic type four-legged dogs. Yep. Oh, yeah. The spots. So, Spot mini. So yep. now that's, that's, that's a completely different element because when, when, when a live animal sees that, they don't know what to make of it. So that's got to be another revolution, how we're going to introduce the live dog to the robotic dog like that. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's going to be pretty funny. We're looking forward to it. But uh, 
uh, yeah, so these are the things that we got to look out for and also integrating other specialties into, like, for example, um, up until recently, no one thought about using arson dogs for a counterterrorism role. So that's why it's important to train with all of these specialties for, for um, explosives guys to watch narcotics guys, for narcotics guys to watch explosives guys, for arson guys to come into the picture um, because the accelerants are, it could be a bomb, it's just a different kind of bomb. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's important that we see how they're trained, how they deploy, and then to keep that in mind to, uh, during a critical incident, um, like recently I was asked with the riots, hey, uh, you know, could we use an explosive dog to detect Molotov cocktails? And I was like, well, no, but, you know, um, that's something that an accelerant dog can possibly do. And it was used with great effect here in New York. They actually did find accelerants in, hidden in a car that Antifa was hiding, uh, using as a staging uh, location. So, yes, it's important for us to train together. It's important to throw in those curve pulls. And it's important, like we said earlier, for fail to happen, the first attempt in learning, but for it to happen in a constructive way, not in a negative way, like, oh, you know, like, oh, yeah, gotcha. No, not like that. But, wow, you know, I, I, I totally missed that. Like, wow, you know, now I'll know to look out for something like that. Or, you know what? Yeah, I missed that bomb that you put in the corner of the room. You know what I'm going to do different this time? I'm going to do my sweep with an observer. You know, I'm going to bring another officer with me as another set of eyes while I'm doing my sweep, who, who would probably pick that up right away because I'm looking at my or, dog. Or we want the handler to use his eyes, too. So we want you to get so tunneled on a search that you're not using your eyes. And, and we teach different techniques with that. We always teach the handler, if you have tinted windows on a car, put your phone up against the tinted window and it'll light up the inside of the car. So this way you can see inside of the car and you know what you're searching. You might see something sitting on a seat and then the search is going to stop at that point. Yeah, no, for sure. All, all it's yeah, all the information you guys are sharing, it, it's amazing stuff. And again, I'm so appreciative of you guys taking the time to, to do this. And, you know, I'll, I'll throw an idea at you guys and we can, of course, talk offline about it. But I would love to be able to do a webinar similar to, similar to what I saw you guys do up in Oregon. Um, if you guys are up to that at some point, you know, like I said, we can work out, figure out logistics or how to do it. But I would love to, because what happens with the podcast is it creates a lot of educational aspects, but it's only audio. So sometimes being able to to talk about it via a PowerPoint in a webinar format is uh, helpful for a lot of people. So if that's something you guys are open to, like I said, we'll we'll progress with it, you know, offline. Roger that. Yeah. Yes. Outstanding. So again. Uh, Randy, John, thank you guys so much for your time, for coming on here. Um, I greatly appreciate it. And as we talked about, I will be definitely getting up there to see you guys here, hopefully sooner than later. And uh, I'm, try I'm trying to get Michelle Mon to tag along with me, and I'm sure she will. Uh, and then we can really have some fun up there. But uh, again, thank you for your time. Absolutely, Cameron. Thank you very Thank you, much. Cameron. Uh, yeah. We're looking forward you and coming out there too absolutely you guys come out to vegas anytime open door and we'll get you out and we'll have some fun too <laughs> roger that sir stay safe and healthy yeah you guys too and everybody 
Thank you for listening to Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. <laughs>